You are listening to the sermon podcast of Nielsville Presbyterian Church, a Christ-centered church in Germantown, Maryland. To learn more about Nielsville, visit us online at nielsville.org. I mean, it's a privilege for me to speak with you this morning. Uh, Let's first open in prayer. Father God, I just pray, Lord, you've anointed my thoughts in these words that I present today, that these are your words, not mine, that I am touching hearts here today, Lord, that this message is specific for those in attendance today at this time, at this place. And I thank you for that, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. So if you were paying attention this summer uh, to the news, you would know that the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 lunar landing occurred in July. And uh, if you remember, uh, those who I'm sure were alive at the time, uh, that it was a time of great uh, pride, but also stress in our country. Soviet Union, the United States were in a, 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 certainly a Cold War arms race, and the race to space would prove sort of moral superiority and a show of power. So it was a uh, a monumental effort. Um, In 1961, President Kennedy spoke to the Congress. And in that, he boldly and almost prophetically declared that the United States would be the first country to put a man on the moon and return him back home safely. And he said that would happen before the end of the decade. This was in 61. So when Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin stepped foot on the moon on 20 July 1969, history was indeed made. The imagination and wonder of our country was building over the ensuing eight years since that president's speech, and it culminated with this event. Splashing down in the Pacific Ocean four days later, the Columbia Rocket Command Module, the astronauts were met with a hero's welcome. And in just inside of seven decades, the United States took a, out of uh, nothing, took something, a grand idea out of nothing, and invented an aviation and space program that would be the envy of the world. But all was not as good as it seemed. Almost immediately, skeptics arose, questioning whether the event ever happened. It was suggested that the clever skills of a Hollywood backlot crew on a remote Air Force base were able to transmit indelible images from there on TV and trick the world that this actually happened. They said the technology wasn't ready, the obstacles too many. This was impossible. Even the iPhone you carry in your pocket has 100,000 times the computing power of the module's computers. So subsequent movies came out uh, a few short years after that, Capricorn 1, where they they showed a staged Mars landing, and then more recently, the X-Files have fueled this belief for decades. So how does NASA attempt to debunk such conspiracy thinking and quiet the skeptics? Well, they put together documentaries. They bring out scientists examining the lunar module, uh, the the moon rocks they brought back. They speak to scientists. They show the footage again but that's not enough to quell the skeptics. But what if we bring out one of the astronauts who walked on the moon? Surely that will work. So Buzz Aldrin goes on to do a number of interviews, TV spots, the skeptics remain. In fact, as recently as 2002, Buzz Aldrin's coming out of a hotel and he's met by a journalist who again questions whether he actually went. Buzz now, 40 some years past the event, quite exasperated, hits him in the mouth. Fortunately, charges were dropped because they said it was provoked. But his integrity and the veracity of the moon landing continues to be questioned. So here we are, 50 plus years later, 
And if a recent polls are to be believed, 5% of Americans still don't believe in the 1969 lunar landing. That's 16 million people. So while the conversation, even from Balls Aldrin, may not satisfy the remaining skeptics, he knows what he saw and experienced. The questions that he gets regarding the actual occurrence of the event, no matter how probing, genuine, or fair, are completely immaterial to him. What happened to him happened. His personal experience cannot be denied. So in his 2002 book entitled Magnificent Desolation, he writes this. There is no place on Earth as desolate as what I was viewing in those first moments on the lunar surface. Because I realized what I was looking at towards the horizon in every direction, it had not changed in hundreds, even thousands of years. Beyond me, I could see the moon curving away, no atmosphere, just black sky, blacker than I ever saw. Cold, it was colder than anyone can experience on Earth, even when the sun is up, but if the sun stays up for more than 14 days, it gets hot, very hot. No sign of life whatsoever. That is desolate, more desolate than any place on Earth. You see, Buzz Aldrin's not interested in talking about whether his experience on the moon was real. He's way past that. It's not debatable. He wants to talk about what it was like. Only 12 people in the history of the world have ever walked on the moon, and he is one of them. He wants to talk about the majesty, the joy, the excitement, the wonderment of being there. And even in commercials, if you watch the World Series this year, he was in commercials. He's now almost 90 years old, and it portrays him talking about going to the moon with his grandson and what the future of space exploration might look like for this young boy. No amount of criticism, ridicule, or questioning will cause him to change his story. Few others can give his perspective. Buzz Aldrin was there. He was present. So throughout the Bible, God repeatedly tells us desiring fellowship with him should be our sole focus. To know God, to understand his ways, to hear from him. The word presence is the Hebrew word for face. To seek his face, to be in his presence. This morning I could have spoken to you from the back of the uh, church. I could have had Lewis pipe in my, my message. It wouldn't have been the same. You wouldn't have seen my face. Seeing my face, my animation, my expression brings color to a black and white conversation. My seeing your faces does the same for me. You know, I can imagine how I might have done if Buzz Aldrin hired me as his press spokesman. You know, get out there, quiet the skeptics, I'm tired of doing it. So I would have probably quoted from his book. I just said, hey, in interviews he says this. I even personally spoke to him, he said that. But I imagine that I would get overrun by the intensity of the skepticism. Eventually, I might start saying, yeah, you're right, the iPhone is more powerful. How did he get there? I'm not even sure it happened. And so I'd be running off the stage questioning it as well because the experience wasn't mine, it was his. So when God created Adam and Eve, until they sinned, they were present with him in the Garden of Eden. And had they only eaten from the tree of life, they would have had eternal life and permanent full fellowship with God. Due to their disobedience of choosing to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they separated themselves from the intimate relationship that God had intended. God would eventually introduce a way to restore that intimacy when he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, redeeming mankind for what had transpired in the Garden of Eden. If God's presence and our relation to him, to him was not his primary intended focus from the beginning of time for all mankind, why then would he give us Jesus as a way to get back to him? James 4.3 says, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. As a fallen human, then perhaps I really can't always trust the motives of my heart. 
Yes, I'd like to win the lottery so that I could help the poor in a bigger way, but maybe that money would take my eyes and dependence off God, make me draw away from him. It wouldn't be good for me. Or maybe there's a promotion at work I'd like to get to uh, nobly get a pay raise and to better care for my family, but maybe deep down I just want to beat the coworker who I'm envious of. So should our prayers then maybe be less about the things we think that we need and more about first seeking the God who already knows what we need? More about allowing God to have his way with us, to allow him to order our steps and to help us grow in confidence that he's really there next to me trying to perfectly customize my life to make his impact on this moment in history. Studying the Bible is important, absolutely. It's important to memorize and to know it well, to know the history of of God's people. But that alone is not enough to maintain a strong trust in God in controlling of our life. Fellowshipping, as we're doing this morning, with other believers, absolutely important. We're encouraged by that. We're uplifted. But that, too, is not strong enough to help give us, uh, sufficient to give us an unshakable faith. We need more faith, less doubt. More rock, less sand. We need to have our own moonwalk experience, like Buzz Aldrin. So how do we get there? For some, a moonwalk experience can happen by witnessing miracles in our lives and that of others. Yes, healing from diseases, from addictions. I've seen addicts in one second, normal, never craving alcohol or drugs again. It's beyond human thinking. I've seen brain tumors healed in people. It makes no medical sense. But how about healing from unforgiveness and envy, things that aren't such a medical issue? So when nine people were shot and killed at a Bible study in the 2015 Charleston uh, church shooting, the families of the killed told the assailant before the judge that they forgave him. In the flesh, without a supernatural touch of God on my life at that moment, I'm sure I would not have been able to voice those words. That story reached the world, and for me, perhaps for you as well, it was a moonwalk experience. So many moonwalk experiences actually happen all around us, but because they're regular occurrences, we're inwardly focused more than outwardly focused, we don't see them. The moon staying in perfect orbit around the earth, the earth around the sun, the amazing design and function of the human body, the way that animals instinctively know how to care for themselves and each other. There's a God behind all that. Albert Einstein, who was not a Christian, once wrote, there are only two ways to live your life. One is though nothing is a miracle, and the other as though everything is a miracle. That quote was from his essay entitled, Everything is a Miracle. Look for a moment at John 9. Jesus heals a man who was born blind. This parallels the moonwalk story I gave you. So Jesus is going along with his disciples, and he comes upon a man who is blind from birth. His disciples ask him, Rabbi, who sinned, the man or his parents, that he should be born blind? And Jesus said, neither the man nor his parents sinned, implying to cause this, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So Jesus goes on to mix saliva with some mud, puts it on the man's eyes, sends him to the pool of Siloam and says, wash it off and you'll come home seeing. So the man does that, and when he is seen by his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging, they said, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But the man himself insisted, I am that man. So then um, uh, they continue to question him. They bring the Pharisees in to investigate the healing. So the Pharisees, rather than focusing on the healing, 
They are not sure also that it's the man. They say, go get his parents. Let's make sure it's him. They said, oh, by the way, he did it on the Sabbath. He must be a sinner. And by the way, a sinner can't heal people. So the man goes on, and he say, say to him, give glory to God by telling the truth. We know this man is a sinner. And he replies, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. The Pharisees and the skeptics had no relationship with this blind man, and rather than see the miracle that was before him, they focused on the formulaic, the checklist, the way it should be. How Jesus healed me, why he healed me, whether he's a sinner, whether it's the Sabbath, none of that matters, for now I see. It was the blind man's moonwalking experience. We look then to Mark 12, 28, the greatest commandment. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing Jesus had given them a good answer, he said, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And the second one is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. No commandment greater than that. And shouldn't it follow that if we did the first four things in loving God that way, we would naturally would love our neighbor? So well said, teacher, the man replied, you are right in saying that God is one and there is none above him. To love him with all your heart and understanding, with all your strength, and love your neighbor yourself is more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You are in his presence. So even as we sing today, we three kings of Orient are to commemorate the epiphany next month, we see the miracle of the three kings. It's an almost incredible story. They believed the prophecy of Malachi 3.1 that foretold the next ruler of Israel coming from the small town of Bethlehem. Then obviously through a firsthand encounter with God, the Magi are compelled to follow the star, a journey that may have lasted actually one or two years. It's usually in these uh, crashes here you see the Magi, but they're really not there in the, in the, in the actual occurrence that the scholars believe. And that leads them not to the baby Jesus, but to a young child Jesus. So once there, they bow down and worship the child. How would they know to do that? They, of course, as, as Ryan mentioned, they brought the gifts. And true worship springs forth from a heart that has contemplated and understands the true and full nature of God. Jesus taught us how to pray with the Lord's Prayer, and in a few minutes I'll be praying that with you. But for today, I want to conclude my presentation by outlining five foundational practices that I uh, see elsewhere in the Bible that can be effective, us, can effective in bringing us closer to God's presence. These are practices that can increase, increase our opportunity for God to touch us in ways so profound, so personal, so out of this world that we'll never forget them, on which we can rely and reflect when difficulties arise. And as such, when our faith is challenged and God seems far off, then we, like Buzz Aldrin, like the blind man, will be able to say that despite the occasional doubts, despite the criticisms, all I know, all I know is that God has been touching my life and the lives of others in ways that I can never imagine. So I'm going to refer to these five practices as the pray withouts. The first one is to pray without distraction. Luke 5, 16, Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. He obviously prayed in public sometimes, but most of the time he spent hours with God. Jesus the Son spending hours with God the Father. It almost said, why would he have to do that? It obviously is important. So I don't know about you, but when I sit down to pray, uh, the things that I have to do are what populate my mind. 
So one thing I have done is I write all the stuff down, put it on my phone. These are sort of the things I kind of think I got to get done today. But God, when I pray, you tell me the order and what gets done. There's a good book out. It's called Two Chairs, Bob Bodine read. And he talks about putting a chair. You sit in a chair and put a chair opposite you as though somewhere there. Image that's Jesus sitting there. It makes it much more personal, much more real. And you can have a conversation. And one thing I learned about prayer is it isn't just me talking. It's me taking time quietly and trying to listen. If I put out a question, I need to try to get the answer. Number two, pray without monotony and low expectations. Psalm 5.3 says, In the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I lay my request before you and I wait expectantly. Consider praying by meditating on the attributes and person of God, the Alpha and the Omega, the great I am, the creator of the universe. Yes, you can be amazed by taking in the majesty of the mountains, the oceans, the stars, but you should be even more amazed by the God who created it all. Focus on just being in his presence, clearing your mind to try to hear from him. The time of reflection helps to make God as big as he really is in the universe and helps to make us as small as we really are. John 3.30 says, he must become greater and I must become less. Focusing within this framework, our dependence and lack of control becomes more apparent. Knowing, too, that God knows me intimately, has numbered the hairs of my head, knows my flaws, he still desires to call me his child, his beloved. Knowing that helps to revoke an attitude of worship. And once we're in a worshipful attitude, then our desires start to change and they better align with his. Number three, pray without pride. James 4.10 says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. 1 Peter 5 says, all of you serve each other with humble spirits, for God gives special blessings to those who are humble, but sets himself against those who are proud. C.S. Lewis once said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Drop the pretense, God, I sometimes doubt that you're there or that you even hear my prayers. Or God, I feel that you're leading me in a certain direction. I'm not so sure about it. I need validation. Please open doors, close doors. Give me that still small voice. Let me know that you're there, that I'm on the right path, that you love me. It's been said that seeing is believing, but in God's economy, believing is seeing. Give God all of you and don't guide the outcome. Give God all of your inadequacies, mistakes, and pain, and let his power, not yours, bring healing and vision for a more hopeful future. Nothing is too mundane or impossible for God. In my practice, I would tell patients that the natural course of a disease, multiple sclerosis, whatever it would be, and then I say that's the way it statistically is. In God's economy, all bets are off. So continue to pray, continue to hope. So anytime man has tried to be equal or greater than God in directing an outcome, God has seen it as an affront. Man was moved away from God's holy presence when that happens, and it happens today. So Adam and Eve were obviously taken out of the garden. Jonah, Job, you know the stories. Even Satan, when he tried to be God, was thrown out of heaven. Allow God to be God, trusting in his perfect rule in your life. Number four, pray without malice toward others. In Matthew 18, 21, we hear about the parable of the unmerciful servant. So Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times good enough? Jesus says, no, not seven, but 77. And in Hebrews 12, 14, we hear that he says, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and, and to be holy. 
Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Like the Charleston families, ask God to pour his power of forgiveness into you to allow you to forgive your neighbor, to seek amends with those we have hurt. God's presence is able to soften the hurt of the grievance, to put it in a perspective of eternity. And the last one, number five, you know this one, pray without ceasing. So this is more about the attitude, the heart and mind, than about being alone all day to pray. We obviously have jobs and responsibilities. We can't be in isolation doing that. So, but the question is, how many times during the day do we pause just for a moment and say, God, I need you to shape what's about to happen in front of me. I need you to shape the conversation I'm going to have with the patient, to shape with my coworkers what happens here. I don't let go of that. He's, he's, he's there all day, not just in the morning or when I pray. Just moments like that. You know that Satan knows the Bible, and he tries to put thoughts in our head that attempt to rephrase what the Bible says, as he did to Eve, or to cast doubt on the promises of God. Ephesians 6.12 tells us, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We need to weaponize prayer. We put on the full armor of God in order to be effective in clearing our minds of falsehoods and half-truths and the result of emotional distress that mindset can bring. So how do we weaponize prayer? We do what Jesus did when he was in the desert. He quoted scripture. So Satan says to him, if you're the son of God, tell the stones to become bread. Jesus says, it is written, man should not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil takes him to a holy city stands on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he says, throw yourself down. Now this is Satan speaking, for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus comes back and says, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And finally then the devil takes him to a very high mountain, shows him the kingdoms of the world and their splendor and says, all this I will give you if you will bow down and worship me. And for the third time, Jesus says, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So one of the ways to effectively pray uh, that I, I have uh, read and seen and others have, have found helpful is memorizing key Bible verses that uh, represent some of the things that can happen in your prayer life and in your life. When you're tempted or distracted, you can pray the it is written way, as Jesus did. So, for instance, when when disease or injury or unsettling thoughts occur to me, which is all the time, I never know where some of these thoughts come from. It certainly wasn't who I am, but they're still there. I still have to deal with them. I remember Isaiah 54, 17, where it's written, no weapon that's formed against me shall prosper, and it goes away, or it's diminished. When I'm despondent, I remember Nehemiah 8.10, where it's written, the joy of the Lord is my strength. And when my faith is faltering, I remember Hebrews 12.2, where it is written, Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So in summary, praying without means praying without distraction, praying without monotony and low expectations, praying without pride, praying without malice toward others, and praying without ceasing. To keep our faith both strong and fresh through the trials and challenges of life, we need regular, firsthand, moonwalking experiences with God. I pray that the thoughts that I shared with you today help you in that journey as we move into the new decade. In a moment, I'll pray over our prayer requests, and we'll conclude with the final hymn. Um, But at this juncture, I want to do something a little different. Um, In my preparing for this uh, presentation, 
uh, I, uh, I came across a Christian song that I thought perfectly matched what I wanted to, I felt God was wanting me to discuss with you today. And, and so we're going to play the song, Awaken Me, by City Church Worship. And I just want you to just think about this, what I presented today in the context of the words. I'll tell you a little about it, though. Um, it's written by uh, worship team leaders, Amy Eaton and Todd Preston. They go to City Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Um, it's based on the verse from Exodus 14, 14 that says, the Lord himself will fight for you. You need only to be still. And in it, uh, Amy, the uh, female uh, worship leader, recounts how the song came together. I wrote the main portion of the chorus as a cry of my heart to my creator. I was reflecting back upon a very difficult season where I recall specifically shouting out to God, fight for me, you promised that you'd fight for me. Her voice was breaking and tears were streaming down her face as she said that. It was during this season, she says, that I found myself pressing into God and seeking an awareness of his presence and nearness fervently. He is the one who awakens us. He is the life giver, the one whom breathes life into us. It was a cry of my heart for him to awaken me to his goodness and presence, to help me through that season. In Jesus' name, amen. To learn more about Nielsville, visit us online at nielsville.org.